Has anybody been watching The Masked Singer? Would you just raise your hand, The Masked Singer? All right. I'm guessing at home there are tons of hands going up because I don't see too many. Let me just tell you about this, this, this TV competition. I don't know if you guys have been following TV at all, reality TV shows, all the rage that have been for a little while now. Um, but in The Masked Singer, uh, it's a reality singing competition that features celebrities singing songs while they're wearing head-to-toe, fantastical, um, just outlandish costumes and face masks. I mean, they're, they're pretty amazing right? Like straight out of Mardi Gras. I mean, they put Mardi Gras to shame, these, these outfits that they wear. And then the show's hosts, um, they vote alongside the audience after all the performers sing, and, and they all, there's a little bit of vote. They kick off the, the worst singer, and, and that person reveals who they are, and then the competition goes all the way up to the, the one singer that everybody loves, and they get unmasked at that point. Um, now, if one really didn't understand the mindset and the worldview of Hollywood, one would think, one would wrongly think um, that, that Hollywood got this idea straight out of the pages of the Bible. Um, I, I want to show you Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowds say, I am? Now, there was lots of messianic literature flying around during this time, um, basically between the prophets of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament. There was about a 450-year period of just silence, years of silence, um, it was called. Um, but there were a lot of books written during that, that, that year of si- those years of silence, a lot of what was called apocalyptic literature. Um, the, the Israelite people had, had come to a point in their, their mindset that they could never, as they looked at the powers around them, they could never, ever achieve world power. So the only way that the prophets could be correct is if God swoops into history and whoosh, does something just crazy, just, just something crazy out of this world because the nation of Israel, they didn't really believe they had they had what it took, right? So, so God had to be coming in and doing something crazy. So that's what all these books were about in that 400-year period. God must be coming in, and they're all, they were all fantastical, right? Yeah, let me take that back. A lot of them, there, there's a lot of history in these books. They're called the Apocrypha. Um, there's a lot of Old Testament history. They kind of fill in the gaps of our Old Testament um, through Jewish tradition and things like that. Um, there's a lot of events that happen between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, like the Maccabees and the Hasmonean dynasty and everything that we've kind of been talking about, how we ended up with Herod, right? You learn all about that, not from the Old Testament, not from the New Testament. You kind of got to read the Apocrypha, that literature in between the two Testaments. Now, we in the Protestant church, we don't count them as holy scripture, but they are instructive. There's a lot of amazing, um, let, me, let me put it this way. The people in Jesus' day, um, and, and as you read the New Testament, a lot of passages, and I, I, I can't go into detail here, it would take forever, but there's just a ton of passages that are steeped not in the Old Testament, but they're steeped in this apocalyptic and a lot of times messianic literature, right? The, what, what about, you know, somebody asked Jesus, what about, you know, a, a wife with seven husbands? Well, where in the world does that come? That comes from one of the stories in the Apocrypha. The poor lady had seven husbands and they all kept dying. It was horrible. But that's kind of what they're, you know, you, there's, there's that, that connection. Um, anyway, it had all of that, but it really had lots of outlandish, fantastical imagery of this eminent day of the Lord. The prophets have been talking about this for years and years and years, obviously, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and then this literature started getting kind of specific. They, they started seeing, okay, this is the way it's got to happen. This is the way it's got to happen. Um, 
And, and, and again, this, these crazy, crazy, crazy um, hopes. And, and what, they, what they would do is they were so keen on hearing from God that if anybody came along and purported to have a sign, right? you know, they, they were reported to be able to speak for God, right? The Jewish people just like, oh, Messiah, oh, right? Anybody who came along, right, the whole nation just, ah, finally, right? So they were, they were bated breath, right? They were just, oh, anybody who came along, they would just jump and pin these hopes on, on this person. And so, so we have some Old Testament prophecy kind of mixed in with a healthy dose of intertestimonial, kind of what we call it, um, prophecy. Uh, Jesus said, who do the crowd say I am? And they respond from a whole bunch of, like I said, Old Testament and intertestimonial. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life, right? So we don't have any of that information in the Old Testament. A lot of that is from the intertestimonial period. Now, what's really important is that we don't read these books, but they did. So when we read the words of Jesus, he is responding to their thoughts about this literature that most of us don't even read. We don't even, we don't even glance at it. Um, but the key for us right, right now, for us to understand, is that the ideas that the people had about this Messiah largely came from this messianic apocalyptic literature. A little bit it came from Isaiah, Jeremiah, things like that, but a lot of it, the details, came in that, that little 450-year period of time. Um, what the Messiah would look like, where he would come from, what he would say, what he would do, you know, all that, all these rich details. And so Jesus, Jesus asked them, but what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Of all these crazy outlandish fantastical ideas out there that, right, that's just the, the, the stew that they were sitting in, right? It was just all around them. Um, Peter famously responds, right? God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah, then we tend to think, you know, at this point we look up there and go, oh, God's Messiah, and we, we sang a song about God's Messiah. And in our mind, because we have read Scripture, right, and we've listened to the preaching, we've kind of filled in all the blanks of what Messiah means, right? We've already, we've, we've added, and you don't even realize that you've added a whole bunch of understandings that these first listeners, they don't have. Who's this guy, Jesus. Literally, they are totally in the dark about this guy. He's been making some claims, and he's been doing some things reportedly. Who, who, who is this guy? God's Messiah. Um, so Jesus still needed to be certain that they had the right prophecies in mind. And Jesus knew at this point, and this is halfway through the book of Luke. I want you to notice that, chapter 9. I think it's got 22 chapters. Um, the disciples are still totally in the dark. They're, Peter... He says Messiah, but as we're going to find out, he has no idea what that term means. He has bought into all of the outlandish, fantastical ideas, just like the rest of the disciples. And so Jesus now has a pretty big task in front of him. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Why? Because of all these crazy ideas. So now Jesus has to teach them this is what Messiah means. Not what all those fantastical, outlandish prophecies and books said about me, I'm going to tell you about me, right? And in fact, this is part of Luke's structure of his gospel. The first half, he basically, he unmasks Jesus. And this is kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to unmask Jesus. And then the second half of his gospel, he unmasks all the wrong messianic ideas about Jesus. And again, so without hesitation, Jesus begins the process of both unmasking himself and unmasking some false prophecies. 
Verse 22 says this. Right out of the chute, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, at this point, you know, if you're a disciple, you're like, what book did you get that out of? Right? We've read all these books, and where are you getting this information? This, this, doesn't, this doesn't add up. Right? So they're, they're a little, little hesitant. So again, at this point, Luke begins unmasking the how that Jesus would fulfill his father's salvation plan, and thus how Jesus would bring us into that same relationship. But before that, in the first half of his gospel, he's got to explain who is this Jesus? Who, who is he? What is he? Where did he come from? What is he about? Who's he for? Is he somebody we follow or we just learn from? I mean, what all does this entail? And so in the first half of the, the book of Luke, he does exactly that. And in fact, in chapter 2, in three short little stories taken from Jesus' childhood, he basically outlines who Je- he unmasks Jesus. He takes off all the outlandish, all the fantastical ideas, and he, he, this is who Jesus is. So what I want to do, I want to, I want to look at these three stories from Jesus' childhood, right? The birth of Jesus. We, we've, we've gone over that pretty well this week. Um, Jesus presented at the temple. It's about six to eight weeks, eight weeks um, after his birth. And then as a boy, 12 years old, um, Jesus at the temple. Three stories. Now, he not only sets his first listener straight, but he also does this for us. Because the fact of the matter is the vast majority of information about Jesus and his mission out there are pretty fantastical and outlandish, right? I, I know you've heard people, you've seen it on radio and on TV, what people think about God and what they believe about God, and you're sitting there going, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. Where are these people getting these ideas about the Son of God? They're just pulling them out of a hat. I, I, I don't know where they're pulling them from, but, but Luke decides at the very beginning of his gospel, right, chapter 2, boom, right at the beginning, this is who Jesus is. Um. Now, why these three stories? From what we know, Luke, at the beginning of his, if if you take a look at this, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, he says, basically, um, I have, I want to tell you all about this Jesus fellow. Um, I've I've researched, I've I've interviewed everybody, and I'm going to tell you, Theophilus, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he came to do. I mean, he says that right at the beginning of his gospel. So we kind of wonder, where does Jesus, where does Luke get these three stories? And what we know from Acts chapter 21 is at Paul, at some point, as you read through his crazy history, um, by chapter 21 of Acts, he's under house arrest in Jerusalem. And so we know from Acts 21 that Luke is with him. So Luke apparently spends about, and this is just conjecture, all right, conjecture. Um, we, we, we guess that Luke was able to spend at least two years just hanging around Jerusalem. And, and we guess, we, not me, <laughs> Bible scholars, I, I read them, um, that he spent some time with Mary. And, and just asking Mary, tell, tell me about what, what are your memories of Jesus? And my guess is Mary told him a lot of stories and if she was a good mother, most of the stories were from his childhood, not from his adulthood. Moms are just like that, right? Let go of that story, mom. <laughs> Please let go of that story. But Mary, she's just... And, and so Luke, and this is kind of strange, of all the stories that he could have heard, all the things that he could have heard about Jesus, just amazing stuff from his mom, his earthly mom. I mean, he picks three, just, just three stories And again, why three stories from his childhood, right? It's not like he's performing signs or miracles or teaching about the kingdom of heaven, 
right? A whole chapter of everyone else talking about Jesus, but, but that's Luke's point, as, as we're going to find out. So again, two purposes, I think, Luke does this in chapter 2. Number one is this, he's kind of laying out his thesis statement, right? This is what I'm going to tell you about Jesus with these three stories, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my gospel fleshing out these three stories, kind of, right? But there's a second reason I believe that he put this right at the beginning, and he included stories from Jesus' childhood. I think Luke was trying to say that this rabbi, of all the rabbis, there were a lot of rabbis, there were a lot of messianic figures, of all the rabbis and messianic figures, this is the guy, this rabbi, from his birth, from his birth, he had all the signs he, he, he had it all. He, he was the guy. He wasn't just some rabbi who at age 30 launches his rabbi career. This rabbi was the son of God from birth, right? He didn't launch something at age 30 like rabbis do. All right, so the first story we nearly have memorized, the birth of Jesus, right? This is the Christmas passage that families read from Granddad's Bible, we, we heard uh, Dan sing last night, A Christmas to Believe in. Um, this, is, this is the Christmas story that Linus reads on a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Um, Douglas read it at our Christmas Eve service. Um, but what I want to do this morning is I want to zero in on what the angel said about Jesus, right? But first, I'm going to jump back to chapter 1 where Jesus' birth is prophesied. And then I'm going to come back here to chapter 2 at Jesus' birth and these three stories from his childhood. So very quickly, I'm going to jump back to chapter 1, verse 31. It says this. This is, this, is, this is the angel of the Lord. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Right? We, we, we heard a little bit. Uh, Emmanuel is kind of more of a title than a, you know, you don't want, hey, Emmanuel, how you doing, buddy? No, it was, hey, Jesus. Right? Hey, dinner time, Jesus. Right? And, and Jesus is Latin. Right? Um, and so if you kind of go back to Hebrew, you're going to come up with Yeshua. So, and, and Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. I just kind of want to throw that out there. And, we're, and basically what's going to happen, um, when, a, when a parent uh, named their child, more often than not, it was, um, it was a reflection of their faith. Right? This is a gift from God. Uh, God heard my prayer and some Hebrew name that that means. Right? But, but, but this one wasn't mom and dad. This is... This name comes from heaven, and, and, and this name, again, a lot of people were named this name. It's basically Joshua, right? We have Joshua in the Old Testament, Yeshua. Um, but this Jesus, not like any of the other Hebrew babies who might have gotten this name, this name, according to the angel, is just packed with heaven stuff, right? Packed with deep layers of, of heaven. And so right out of the gate, um, the angel is going to... Um, Reveal what, what is involved in this name Jesus, this name God with us. What exactly does that mean? So let's jump back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here's what the angel says, right? We know, we've heard Linus, we've heard Douglas, okay? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, right? So first of all, the angel gives us some information. He basically has three pieces of information. The first information is that he is a savior, right? God is about to accomplish his salvation through an actual son of Israel, right? Has been born to you. Not somebody from the outside, not some super you know, Marvel universe come sweeping in, you know, to save the world. This is, this is one of your own. A son of Israel is going to be a savior, all right, so that, that, was, that was a big deal. Um, 
And you can find on this very night in the city of David, wrapped in cloths, you can find him lying in a manger, right? So the second thing the angel says is that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, uh, Greek. Um, Jesus is God's anointed one, right? The chosen one in whom God was going to, well, God authorized and empowered to carry out his salvation, right? I mean, and, and again, you, you, you hear these two things, Savior and Messiah, and if you were a good Jew, you would immediately respond, oh, whoa, 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 time out, only God, only God can save, right? It's right there in the word, the Lord is salvation, the Lord, not, not Yeshua, I mean, it says it right there. Um, the good Jew would say, only God can save. Um, and so the staggering, the staggering third proclamation, Jesus is the Lord. And it's even more staggering because if you look back through chapters 1 and 2, Luke's already referred to God, Heavenly Father God, as the Lord nearly 20 times, and now he's given that title to Jesus. Right? So the angel just... It, 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 if you're listening and you're a first century Jew, this is blowing your mind. You do not get your head around this right away. You are going to, no, 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 you're going to fight. You're going to double down. You're just, and, and we see it throughout Scripture. The Jews just like, no, this is not right. Only God. Right? There's only one God. One God. And so we have the first of three heavenly proclamations concerning the true identity of Jesus. The first one, we have angels from heaven at the birth of Jesus. First story. Um, and three exclusive titles, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And then the second story from Jesus' childhood, when he's eight weeks old, uh, there were actually three ancient ceremonies that were performed kind of all at once. The first was circumcision. We know all about that, eight days. Even on the Sabbath, this is one of the few things. You could pull your donkey out of a ditch, apparently, and you can circumcise your son. Nothing else on the Sabbath, right? Um, but the second one was the purification after childbirth. For a, a girl, it was a little bit shorter amount of time, but if you gave birth to a boy, you had to wait 40 days, and then you would go to the priest and, you know, whatever. Um, and then the third one, the redemption of the firstborn. And, and this is all, all three of these um, Mary is doing. Um, and, and when they go to Jerusalem, they, they run into Anna and Simeon. Um, they're both old, they're both devout, they're both prophets awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. They spend all their time on the Temple Mount praying. And once again, Luke employs a childhood story to relate a theological truth about Jesus that was true even at his birth. Only this time it's not from an angel, this time it's from a prophet. Here's what the prophet says. This is Simeon. Savior Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Like Anna, he had been waiting and praying for the redemption of Jerusalem, and so now he understands what just happened. Verse 30 through 32, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. It wasn't secret. Very public, right? A crucifixion is way too public, incredibly public. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So Simeon's thanksgiving to God tells us that the Lord's salvation is for all people. And again, this is huge. Not only the Jewish religion, but most of the, the, the mystery religions and a lot of the pagan beliefs in, in the, that time and place. Um, wasn't for all people. Very, very elitist. And so a second... I don't know, God utterance, right? The first time from an angel at the birth of Jesus, this time by a Holy Spirit-inspired prophet. 
right? The Holy Spirit from heaven when Jesus is presented at the gospel. And then the third story included by Luke, right? When Jesus is 12 years old and he's right on the cusp of adulthood. He's about to take on the role of being an adult. If you're Jewish at age 13, bar mitzvah, if you're a female, bat mitzvah. When Jesus is 12 years old, he goes to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph travel to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, right? So this is the third story in chapter 2. And as the, the caravan heads home, so you, know, you all know the story, they go, Passover's over, the whole kind of probably in a, a caravan heading back north to Nazareth. And as the caravan heads down, an entire day passes by, which is very easy to understand. A lot of times the the family and the kids would start out super, super early because they had to travel a little bit slower. And the men, because they were lazy and didn't want to get out of bed, they would come afterwards. and They wouldn't see the group until like that evening around the campfire. And so apparently the first day went by. Mary thinks Joseph's got Jesus. Joseph thinks Mary's got Jesus. Nobody's got Jesus. Jesus isn't there. And so after the end of that very first day, they, they hustle back to Jerusalem and they search for three days, right? Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph? Three days, like, where are you? When we find you, you won't have to wait for crucifixion because we're going to kill you. I mean, you can imagine their thoughts. They're just like, woo, they're out there. They are three days. I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine searching for my kid, a 12-year-old, for three days. Just, it's crazy. Um, and when they finally find Jesus, everyone, including mom and dad, are amazed. He's, we get the, we got to be careful about this idea. It's not like he's sitting there quizzing the masters. He's sitting, and the way Luke describes it is the way a Jewish would describe somebody who was there to study. Right? The fact that this 12-year-old boy was, it's not like he was <laughs> mouthing these wisdom, pearls of wisdom were falling from his mouth. That's not the idea. The idea is he was acting like an adult, right? He understood adult level. This is, this is, this is what I need to understand. This is what I need to know. they, They were just amazed. They were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And I know Luke says that so much nicer. I can imagine what Mary said. Jesus replies, well, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be? I want you to notice that. I I had to be. There's only like four or five times in Scripture where Jesus had to do something, right? He had to be about his father's business, right? He had to be in his father's house. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, the Jews have always understood and called God their father, but they never really understood him more as a father than the fact that he gave birth to them. Right? In their mind, it's not like he was daddy at home every afternoon. He was just like this kind of absent father where you say his name super, super reverently. And they even got to the point where they don't even want to say his name, right? Get him mad. Like, so, so to call him in the Jewish mindset, to call him father or dad, it w- was a stretch, right? We, we've got our connotations of the word dad and father. No. Not, not at this point. They, they, it, again, their idea is he gave birth to our nation. Therefore, he's our father, period. Not, nothing sentimental, nothing intimate at all, right? And then, and, and again, even though by way of the, the, the patriarchs, right, familiar, familial uh, uh, family relationships, right, that, um, that they served as a national pattern for the relationships that should exist between God and Israel, um, but they had never really understood it in that manner. They never really grasped, grabbed hold of the idea of God's fatherhood, not at least in the way that Jesus was going to teach them. 
right? And so the very first recorded words of Jesus right here in Scripture are a claim to a relationship between himself and God that was deeper and more profound than anything that the Israelites had ever known before. What he said here kind of blew their minds, right? How dare you claim that level of relationship with our Father? How dare you? I mean, and you can see why they got so upset of what Jesus was saying. He was just destroying their culture. He was just dismantling it, deconstructing it all over the place. Love that word. And so he even taught us to call God Abba, right? Daddy. And I know a lot of people struggle with this in a huge way. I, 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 I can't even tell you how many people I can't bring myself to call God Daddy. And yet that's what Jesus seems to be implying here, right? That he's got that kind of a relationship with a heavenly father. Again, it was just a, a form of address used by Jewish children, the equivalent of Papa or Daddy. But it was crazy because it opened the possibility of undreamed of, unheard of intimacy with God. Any other world religion, that would have been unthinkable, unthinkable. But most importantly for us, Jesus is modeling a relationship with God into which Jesus is going to bring all who place their faith in God through him. That's the kicker of this part right here. This, this is This is the part we celebrate at Christmas, that he is ushering us into this crazy relationship where we can't even hardly say the word, Daddy. He's like, no, I'm going to usher you into the midst of this relationship with your heavenly Father. This is the equivalent of some of John's lofty thoughts on the relationship between Jesus and God, right? John 10, chapter 30, or verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one. And then from John chapter 5, it says this, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do, he can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. And so from the very, very, very beginning to the very end of his life, Jesus has this compulsion, right? He must, he must, he must be about his father's business. And, and, and in all of this, in all of this, everything that I've been talking about this morning, we have an incredibly satisfying thought, incredibly satisfying fact, that without voices from heaven, the coming of Jesus into the world would have meant nothing, right? He just would have been another person, talking. All these other people came along talking. We would not have had any idea about Jesus unless we had voices from heaven telling us what these things that he was doing, what did they mean? What, 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 what did the sign mean? And so we have voices, voices from heaven. Um, the majority of the pagan faiths, the, the, the pagan faiths, at that time in the world, and really many today, um, the voices, they don't clarify, right? They mystify. The mystery religions of the day, and, and again, many faiths today, there's stuff you don't find out till way, way, way. They don't want you to find out till way, way, way later because it's kind of out there. But the fact of the matter is that in God's word, we have voices that clarify rather than mystify. Right? There's no mystery. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. Jesus has unmasked everything, all, everything that's false, and he's unmasked everything that's true. We don't have to guess. 
I know a lot of people love reading the book of Revelation and they love guessing at what's going to happen at the end times, but Jesus made it very, very clear. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The book of Revelation is not a book of mysteries. It's basically a book saying that God wins. God wins. The, the, the kingdoms of this world lose. His kingdom wins. And a whole bunch of fantastical, incredible language, but that, 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 that's basically it. There's no mystery to decipher. Everyone wants to look at the book of Revelation. Oh, i got to find out when Christ's returning. Nope. It's not why it was written. Stop it. Just stop it. It's explaining to you that God wins, right? That all of this comes true. And so Luke has the angels from heaven telling us who Jesus is. We have the prophet's words from heaven telling us who can benefit from Jesus. And then from the words of the living word himself, we learn that to fully grasp the fullness of this message of salvation, we have to follow the one who already has a crazy, crazy close relationship with the Heavenly Father. And if we follow him to the Heavenly Father, Luke promises us, well, he, in, he speaks Jesus' word, Jesus promises us that we can enter into that same relationship with the Heavenly Father that he enjoys, that Abba Father relationship. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is who he came to benefit, everybody, this whole city, this whole world. And this is why you need to follow him. There's nobody who has a relationship with God in heaven like Christ Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you so much for Luke's words, the way he records them, the fact that, that he showed us some things about Jesus, revealed some things about Jesus that were true from his birth. He didn't figure this stuff out and then lean into it later. This was his birthright. So, Father, for every person in this room or hearing my voice, and they thought, I, I need to know this Jesus, just invite him into your life. It's that simple. Father, um, I, I need your son Jesus in my life. Um, I need better direction than I've been receiving from the world um, I, I need to hear from you. And Pastor Jerry says that when I hear the words of Jesus, I'm hearing from you, Father. And so, Father, I, I want to give you my life. I want, I want, I want metanoia. I, I want my life completely transformed, not just something added on that I, that I got to do on top of everything else I got to do. Father, I, I need a complete do-over. I want, to just, I want to go through the river all over again. Just start fresh. Father, your son offers us this opportunity to start over, to start fresh, to go into that river Jordan and come back out and do everything right this time. And this time we can do it because we have you by our side. You're the way. We follow you and, and we don't get lost. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and everything that that name entails. Jesus is our salvation. And this Christmas, we are so thankful for that. Father, in his name I pray. Amen.